Last Sunday evening, I began a series uh, for two lessons, a lesson that I have been asked to preach on the subject of the distinguishing marks of the church. And we discussed at that point in time that when you talk about something being distinctive, we want to talk about those features which distinguish it from others. And we're talking about the Lord's church. And in order for us to sometimes appreciate that, some illustrations can always be helpful for us. How do you recognize one car from another? How do you recognize one person from another? I mentioned last Sunday evening, as I've often used the photo of Brother Leonard's 1957 Chevrolet as an opportunity to begin a Bible study by talking about the Lord's church and its distinctive nature. And I discuss with people, you know, there's some features that make a 1957 Chevrolet unique. The fins that you have, the, the little bullets on the hood, the, there's so many features that are unique about that car. I remember even after that, um, when the DeLorean Motor Company came along and they had a stainless steel car, that was something that was unique, something that was some features that were able to be recognized from a distance. There's also people that none of us ever met George Washington, but that photo becomes so uh, distinguishing by the features that he had. Or maybe men like um, uh, Albert Einstein and his unique features, that big old bushy mustache and the unkept hair. You recognize people by that. Last week I used an illustration, what if your child was missing? And I've changed it a little bit. And, of course, this is, again, not a real person. But if your child was missing and this was your child and someone says, well, what do they look like? And, well, the little girl's name is Sally. And her hair is blonde. Her eyes are green. And she's wearing a red dress with white polka dots on it. She has some pink bows in her hair. And if you need to, here's a photo of little Miss Sally. You see, you, you see some distinguishing features. And so if you went and you went out a little room and you saw a little girl sitting there and she had blonde hair and maybe she even had some pink bows in her hair, but she was wearing a green dress and you'd say, that's not Sally. Or if you look at the little girl and you see a little girl and she's wearing a red dress and you say, are you Sally? She says, no. My name's Joan. You see, you look for distinguishing characteristics. And as we think about the Lord's church and we open our Bibles, we start looking for those features of the Lord's church which make it unique. And last Sunday evening, we talked about the first four, about the origin and the establishment of the Lord's church, going all the way back to A.D. 33 when the Lord himself promised to build his church Brother Danny read just a few moments ago. And then the fulfillment of that in Acts chapter 2 when the gospel was preached and the Lord added people to his church. We talked about the scriptural designation, about all of the terms that are found in scripture. The terms of entrance. Jesus in John 3 verses 3 through 5 said, Unless one is born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. And then the acts of worship. Well, tonight we're going to take those last four, the mission of saving souls, the doctrine of the New Testament, the government is a monarchy, and then the destiny is heaven. 
I'm not suggesting these eight are the only unique characteristics of the Lord's church. I'm sure that we could have many more. But as I'm trying to look and trying to find some unique features, these are some things. The primary mission of the Lord's church is spiritual. It is otherworldly. When we start thinking about the nature of the church, it's so easy to start saying, well, Here's the church, it's one kind of organization. Here's the Lions Club, and maybe here over here's a community club. Is it unique? Does it have a unique feature about it? Let's notice John 18 and verse 36. Jesus answered Pilate by saying, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. You see, the Lord's church is a spiritual kingdom. We can find that further in Luke 17, verses 20 and 21. Now, when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom doesn't have land borders like the United States or some other country. It is a spiritual kingdom comprised of all of those whom the Lord has added to his church. In Romans 14 verse 17, Paul would write, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The Lord's kingdom is not something that's focused on the here and the now. And that's so hard for people to grasp. Because when Paul was writing to the Corinthians, he said some people look at us and they think that our warfare is carnal. But he said, verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Everything is about a spiritual warfare. Now, someone says, but doesn't the church have some benevolent concerns? Shouldn't we be people of compassion? And the answer to that is absolutely yes. God does expect us to be a compassionate people. In James 1 and verse 27, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit the orphans and the widows in their trouble or in their affliction and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Yes, we are to be concerned about them. In 1 Timothy 5, verse 8, he says, If anyone does not provide for his own and especially those of his household, he's denied the faith and worse than an unbeliever. And he goes on to explain about those people who are in need, particularly the widows. He said, If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them and do not let the church be burdened that it may relieve those who really are widows. That is, the church does have an obligation to provide for those widows and those orphans. And so that may be an important part of our focus, but our unique focus is the fact that we are not only concerned about a person's food, their clothing, their homes, and the necessary things of this life. 
One of the most important aspects of the gospel is the preaching of it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 21, For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. What we're talking about is not just saving a man's life. We want to save their souls. Now, what does the Lord think about when the Lord's church becomes nothing more than a social club where people get together and they share their common interest? Or those who are trying just to meet the felt needs of someone who comes and says, hey, will you give me food to eat? Will you give me clothes to wear? Well, I want you to notice, when we change the focus of the church, it makes the Lord angry. In Matthew 21, verses 12 and 13, and then Jesus went to the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of thieves. What God wants for his house is to be a spiritual house. And when you and I turn it into nothing more than a physical house, we have totally misunderstood. The unique feature of the Lord's church is that it is otherworldly. It is seeking a mission to save souls. The second feature of it is the doctrine is the New Testament. And it's clear that when you read what Peter and Paul and John and Mark and Luke and others write that it is that doctrine which is taught. Listen to Acts 2 verse 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayers. What those apostles taught, the church continued to practice and to teach that. In 1 Peter 4 verse 11, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. That means that a man speaks as if God has provided the message and the message we find is written in Scripture. We don't change it either. Deuteronomy 4 verse 2, You shall not add to the word that I command you nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Whatever God has told us, we accept that. We don't add to it. We don't take away from it. If you want a New Testament passage which says the same thing, Revelation chapter 22, verses 18 and 19. He said, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in the book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the prophecy of this book, God will take away his part out of the book of life and from the holy city and from the things that are written in this book. You see... You and I have no right to change it. And it's clear that when you read the epistles that are written, like the one written to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1 and verse 3, he says, I urged you when I went into Macedonia to remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. You see, it's very plain. We could go passage after passage after passage, which says the doctrine is important. Some people say, well, we teach the New Testament. We just add our ideas to it. For instance, 
If you confront a person who is a member of the Church of Jesus Christ, of Latter-day Saints, more commonly known as Mormons, they use the Book of Mormon, they use the book Doctrines and Covenants, and they use the book of Pearl of Great Price. If you come to a person who's a member of the Christian Scientist Church, they'll follow the writings of Miss Mary Baker Eddy. Or if you come to the Seventh-day Adventist, they'll follow the writings of Miss Ellen G. White. Or if you find a person who's a Jehovah's Witness, they will refer you to not only some misused passages in Scripture, but they will most often say, here, I want to give you a copy of the Watchtower and the writings of Charles Taze Russell. Or if you're talking with the Methodist, the Methodist not only has their Scriptures, but they have the Methodist discipline, which they follow as a part of their practice. If you're talking with a Presbyterian, they will refer you to the Westminster Confession of Faith. If you're talking to a Catholic, not only will they say, well, yes, we'll accept the Scriptures. A few years ago when I met with a Catholic priest here, I asked him, I said, how do you determine what you do in religion? He said, oh, it's three things. He said, we do follow Scripture, but he says we follow the tradition of the church and the proclamations of the Pope. You see, the Scripture is not sufficient. If you talk to a Pentecostal, they will tell you about their feelings and how they believe they're being led. This morning in our Sunday morning class, we talked about 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. When he says it makes you complete, it is all sufficient. I don't need anything else. That's the reason why when people come and they say, what's your creed? It's the Bible. No, no, but what creed do you have? That's, it's the Bible. That's, that's all we follow. And the New Testament, because that's the portion which we are under. The third aspect of this unique feature of the church is its government. And the government of the Lord's church is an absolute monarchy. Someone says, what do you mean? We have a king. We have a monarch. And the king has all authority. Listen to the book of Ephesians as Paul's writing about the church. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. God gave Jesus to be head over the church. What does that mean to say that he's head over the church? Colossians 1 and verse 18. And he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. That doesn't mean there's areas that there's Lord has, you know, it's all under him. Everything. All of us answer to him. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15, who will manifest in his own time he who is blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the only potentate. There's no one else, and it doesn't matter if you live in Vatican City, it doesn't matter if you live in Nashville, Tennessee, or wherever you live, Jesus is the head of the church. 
He said in Matthew 28, verse 18, he came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That means everywhere. Jesus has all authority. That's a, a principle that has to be understood. There is no one higher. Like Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 13, he, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. The Lord's church is not now, nor has it ever been, a democracy or a republic. You and I do not vote on doctrine. We don't vote on anything that has to do with the Lord's authority. Whatever he has spoken, that is our obligation to fulfill. And yet, there are people whom the Lord has sent out. He has commissioned them, if you will. Just like in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, it talks about worldly leaders. He says, submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether the king is supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him. You see, the king can send out emissaries, people to do his will. Well, if I start thinking about that, the Lord has set up some offices, those to whom he has given jobs to carry out. The Lord has chosen there be bishops. They're also called overseers. They're also called elders. They're also called pastors. Men who meet the qualifications of 1 Timothy chapter 3. Acts 20 verse 28 says, Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. You know, we didn't do that. God did that. He's the one that gave those qualifications. Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. In addition to those, the Lord recognized the need for special servants within the congregation. They're referred to as deacons, which is a transliteration of that original word, but men who serve. Philippians 1 and verse 1, Paul said, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints who are in Christ Jesus, who are in Philippi, with the bishops and the deacons. And he provides for them the qualifications found in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. And for the purpose of tonight, I'm not going to read all of those qualifications, but to recognize that it's the Lord who gave these qualifications. But now, where do I read in the Bible about a president? Or where do I read in the Bible about a synod? Or where do I read about a general convention, a gathering where people gather annually or biannually? Where do you read about cardinals or the Pope or a general moderator or any of other these terms? And the answer is nowhere. It's not there. And if it's not there, then you and I have no right, no authority to add them because we serve under an absolute monarchy. The fourth aspect is that of the destiny there were people who in the first century tried to persuade people to their own brand of Judaism. You've got to recognize all these sects and what they're trying to do is everybody's trying to get them to follow their pathway. And one thing the Lord says in Matthew 23, verse 15, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel the land and sea to win one proselyte. And when he's won, 
You make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Wow, that's pretty <laughs> radical. The Lord said, you scribes, you Pharisees, you hypocrites, you're trying to make your own proselytes. But when you make them your proselytes, you're not going to heaven. There are many people who will claim to belong to the Lord, but will not. The Lord in Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23, in that great Sermon on the Mount, was trying to explain to people. He said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. But many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? Then I will declare to them, depart from me, or I never knew you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, you practice iniquity. I can claim I'm going to heaven. I can claim I am saved. That doesn't mean that I am. What matters is whether or not I am doing what the Lord said. In Matthew 15 and verse 13, He said, every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Do you know what's going to happen on the day of judgment? There's going to be a lot of people who are going to expect for the Lord to let them go into heaven, but that's not going to be their destiny. Why is it not going to be their destiny? Because they have chosen their own pathway. You see, to go to heaven, you've got to go the Lord's way. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way that leads to life, and there are few who find it. You could add to that John 14 and verse 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes unto the Father but or except by me. That's the only way. Now, if I start looking at all of this, I don't want a cheap imitation. I want the real thing. I can't tell you how many times I bought knockoffs thinking that maybe I've got a good deal. I'm going to tell you what I've learned. There's a reason why they're cheap. It's because usually they're worthless. There's a lot of people out there, oh, you don't have to to follow the difficult way. You don't have to go through that straight or narrow gate. Oh, but you do. Because if you want to go to heaven, you've got to go the Lord's way. I want to end with one last passage. Psalms 127, verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. You can spend all your life here and be religious and die lost. You can put all of your effort in trying to be a man that is living an exemplary life, but if you're not doing it the Lord's way, it's not worth anything. You know, that's the reason why I come to this point, and that is you don't want to find out too late. I don't want to find out too late that I have listened to someone else who's told me this is okay or that's okay. I want to make sure that I go to the Scriptures and I find that the church that is revealed there is the one that I am a part of.
You know, when you get to an end of a lesson like this, for some people it may make you angry. Over the years, I have spoken with people who say, what you're telling me is the religion I've been a part of is wrong. And my answer to that is usually is, I may have told you what the Scripture says, but it's God who's telling you that the direction you're going is wrong. Because it's not my word, it's the Lord's word. And by the way, I'm really your friend because I'm trying to tell you the truth. I want you to be saved eternally. I want you to go to heaven. And if you've chosen to go the wrong way, why not stop now? There's no need to keep going down the wrong pathway. If you ever turn down a road and be going down the wrong road and you realize, hey, this, this is not the right way I ought to be going. What do you say? Well, I guess I'll drive about another hour or two down this road and see if there might be a real good, nice place to stop for. No, you find the best place you can to turn around and go in the right direction. If you want to become a member of the Lord's Church tonight, and you believe that Jesus is the Christ, and you're willing to repent of your sins, and you're willing to confess Him before men, why not come forward and be baptized tonight and let the Lord add you to His church? Acts 2, verse 47. If you're a Christian and you've been wandering away, now it's time to come home. Come as together we stand and sing.